seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now the trial of the NHS nurse Lucy Letby is continuing at Manchester Crown Court. She wept as she told the court that she was devastated at being accused of murdering seven young babies and the attempted murder of ten others. Asked by her defence lawyer if she'd done anything wrong, no, she replied. She told the jury that she'd only ever done her best to care for the babies. This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations. The alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them. Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven newborns and injuring ten more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire. The jury has now been sitting for almost ten months. The prosecution and defence have finished outlining their cases and the jury have been deciding whether Lucy Letby is guilty or not guilty of the 22 charges that she faces. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for The Mail. I will be in court to report on the case as it develops. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. So, Liz, the jury have now been deliberating for 14 days. Today would have been the 15th day of deliberation, but the jury aren't sitting today. So they're back again tomorrow, and of course we'll bring you any updates as soon as we can. And as we've been saying over the past few weeks, there's nothing we can do but to carry on waiting. Welcome to episode 49, more of our best guests. So as we've told you in previous episodes, we won't do anything in this podcast to put the integrity of a fair trial at risk. So while the jury continue their deliberations, we're limited in what we can say. What we can't do is discuss anything that's happened in court or recap any of the evidence that we've heard over the last 10 months. So instead this week, we're going to bring you some more of our favourite moments from the fantastic guests we've interviewed over the previous 48 episodes. We hope you enjoy them. In episode nine, we spoke to former North West Crown prosecutor Nazir Afsal about the importance of open justice and if filming in UK courtrooms could one day be permitted. 
one way of tackling public confidence or lack of public confidence. Mm. But there's only one way, really. It's transparency. If you shine a light on something, you get to see what it's like. And also, people do change their behaviours. You know, the, the public gallery, you'll find generally they're empty in most cases, yeah. the vast majority of the time. People can't be bothered or can't afford to go into town to watch it. And yet the court is meant to be public. It's mm. meant to be open to you. You know, unless unless you're involved in a case, most people, most ordinary people don't set foot in a courtroom unless they get called for jury service. And there is a bit of, I don't know, you see witnesses come and give evidence who look absolutely terrified because they've no idea yeah. what to expect. Lawyers and judges don't like the idea of streaming. I wonder why, right? <laughs> and, uh, the point is, they are operating, being paid for by you, the taxpayer. And therefore, we, the taxpayers, should see what's being done in our name. You know, there used to be that saying, justice should be seen. It's a no-brainer for me. You know, I've already had conversations with the Labour Party on this, because they're preparing their manifesto, if there is going to be an election in a year or two. And, you know, I said to them, the one thing that would make the biggest difference to the public's view of justice and make it as accessible as possible would be to allow streaming. It has to be subject to protections, but in the main, the most important thing you could do to make the justice system belong to us would be to allow us to see it. So what's Sakir's view on that, Nazir? Are you going to give us a scoop? I haven't spoken to Sakir about it, but I've spoken to his team, and they are very open to Mm -hmm. considering it. And the use of these new CVP links in COVID, it just proved that the technology is possible. We should have, you know, in effect, digital courts we should allow people to see what's going on. You should be allowed to give evidence from your bedroom or from your workplace. It normalises it, doesn't it, as well, then, I suppose? 100%. There are all sorts of answers to all of the questions that people pose. Part of the reason for the podcast, obviously we're pushing a few legal boundaries, I suppose, by covering an ongoing trial on a podcast, but we felt yeah. it was important because of exactly what you just said around giving witnesses a voice, giving victims a voice, giving the yeah. process a voice, because you've got that thing with a long trial where we media go into the beginning, opening statement, rock up a couple of times in the middle, and then come for the defence, the and yeah. then at the end. Yeah. And, and actually the detail of the process is lost. The Americans have got this. The default is that all cases will be visible. We know the podcast has developed a really big following globally, but it's particularly popular in Australia. So when Melbourne-based court reporter Karen Sweeney let us know she was listening, we got her on in episode 33. I'm Karen Sweeney. I am a journalist court reporter for Australian Associated Press, which is Australia's version of the Press Association. Have you come across any sort of similar thing in the in Australia in terms of covering a court case in this way? I think the only time I've come across it, do you remember the Teacher's Pet podcast? There's a follow-up podcast that covers the trial from week to week. I listened to Teacher's Pet a few years ago, obviously before the trial. So I was like, when that podcast came out on the trial, I was like, I'm all in on this one. But that is the only time I've ever known another podcast do a live trial. Maybe it's because the Teacher's Pet podcast was the first to follow an ongoing trial that people in Australia are also really engaged in our podcast. I heard about it from another court reporter colleague who was living in the UK when Lucy Letby was arrested. And so she had known about it then. She was working as a journalist there and that's how she'd come across it. And we were talking about various podcasts and things in in our, we have a, a court office where all the court reporters sit together. And she was talking about it one day and sort of a few of us got on board and now you've got some very loyal listeners. 
For us, covering courts here, which very rarely have a press room these days, it's really interesting to hear that reporters from competing organisations there are all based in a room together. It's fantastic. Honestly, the, the camaraderie among court reporters is like no other specialty area of reporting I've ever come across. You know, crime reporters a little bit, you're all sitting in the same gutters at the same crime scene. But court in particular, we spend more time together than we do with our actual colleagues from our workplaces. What's the longest trial you've covered, Karen? Two former homicide detectives in Sydney who were charged with murder. Every part of the crime was caught on CCTV and these were homicide detectives. The only part of the murder that wasn't captured was the actual shooting. The three men walk into a storage unit, two men walk out carrying a body. It's, you know... The prosecution argued that it was one or the other. Each argued that it was the other one. There was, you know, the meeting at the pub where they collect the victim, the driving him to the storage unit. There was the disposing of the body afterwards. They'd been to a hardware store and bought rope and a tub and, you know, they'd driven the body to one of their homes, loaded him in a boat and home CCTV footage captured the body in the back of the boat as they towed it to the boat ramp and then tried to dump the body off the back of the boat and it washed back in and was spotted by a surfer. These were, back in the day, very high-profile, very well-known homicide detectives who potentially thought they were above the law and that no-one was going to catch them. Made for a fascinating trial to cover, though. One of the UK's most prominent criminologists joined us for a chat in episode 13. Professor David Wilson is from Birmingham City University. I actually joined the prison service at 23, straight out of Cambridge University. I literally finished my PhD viva on the Friday and on the Monday I was the assistant governor under training at Wormwood Scrubs. I started by becoming intrigued about crime and punishment. I didn't study criminology, I studied history and philosophy, Mm. but I became intrigued about crime and punishment because I played rugby And in one particular game, I was a winger. I got fouled pretty badly by an opponent. And when we both got up from the ground, I punched him in the nose and broke his nose. And (laughs) everybody, everybody at the time and later in the bar, so did he, congratulated me for what I had done because he had fouled me. It just so happened that same week in the town of Cambridge, a young man who was the same age as me, who committed an offence with no greater use of violence than the violence I had used on the rugby pitch, was sent to Borstal for two years for punching somebody when the pubs were being emptied at closing time in the town of Cambridge. And he got sent to Borstal for two Mm. years. I wanted to know why my violence was different to his violence. And so it was that philosophical basis that encouraged me to become interested in crime and punishment. And then I did the civil service exams, then went through a recruitment process and literally became the assistant governor. My first ever job was assistant governor Mm. under training at Wormwood Scrubs. Not just any old prison. I always say I survived that process as being a, a very young and rather privileged and naive young man by being able to play rugby, back Mm. to rugby. I got picked for the Wormwood Scrub side and scored two tries in my first game. It was a kind of socialization process that allowed me to survive what was a very difficult baptism of fire where I literally was out of my depth. 
Did you learn anything from when you became an assistant governor and then a governor about justice and the experience you and that other boy had shared or not shared because your experiences were so very different? What did it teach you? Oh, how important class is within the criminal justice system. Um, mm. you know, our prisons are filled today not with public school boys with qualifications. You know, the average reading age of the sentenced male prison population is seven. They are functionally illiterate. Mm. Most have been thrown out of school. That incident was merely a window into how class and privilege and prejudice operate. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When Mark Hanna spoke to us back in December, he was the editor of McNay's Essential Law for Journalist, which is basically the Bible that Caroline and I abide by whenever we're reporting news stories. He's now passed on the editorship to Jill Phillips from The Guardian, but he told us in episode 10 how laws govern all reporting, including anyone writing on the internet. Law does affect what's published on the internet. You can be fined or jailed or what you publish on the internet. One of the changes in the law is how internet publication affects uh, what can be reported, and the law changed to some extent to cover internet publication. Judges are, are, are worried when a Crown Court trial begins, uh, whether the jury will do its own research onto the internet, and juries are very firmly warned against doing their own research. So, the, yes, the book does cover the dangers of what you publish on the internet, although obviously... There's a difference between what a journalist knows mm. about the law and what the man or woman in the street knows about the law. They may break the law without realising they're doing it. That was the distinction I was making, really. Not that your book doesn't cover the, the internet, but doesn't probably cover the people who don't read the book or don't train as journalists or don't understand that that law is really, really important for loads of reasons. Well, people have been fined for identifying you know, victims of rape on the internet. But of course, that's illegal. Yeah. yeah. So maybe schools could do a little bit more if they're doing anything at all. And when they tell people about social media and the dangers of it, which of course are manifold, they could point out that some things are illegal. So obviously, Mark, the podcast is covering a live trial, which is challenging and terrifying in, in joint measure <laughs> for us. It's really interesting that we're doing this summary of each week's evidence. But we're acutely aware that this is a multi-multi-million pound trial and we've got to be very careful with whatever we do to make sure that we're reporting it correctly. 
just to explain to the listener for us, would you, what rules govern our reporting of a live trial, I suppose? Yeah, sure. The two main things in the forefront of the reporter's mind, apart from any particular reporting restriction about who can be identified, is the law of defamation and the law of contempt. They both require reporting of cases to be fair and accurate. And obviously, accuracy is self-explanatory. Fairness means that the reader is not misled by the report. So if a reporter makes a mistake, and it's a bad mistake, it could be that someone in the trial could sue them for defamation. For example, if they say someone was convicted when they're acquitted, mm-hmm. then obviously yeah. that's a terrible mistake. But just misquoting witnesses, or indeed judges, could mean that the witness or judge could sue for defamation. Contempt is a different priority. That's to maintain the integrity of the justice process to make sure that people get fair trials, for example, and and that justice is done. What is the most dangerous, I think, is to write into a trial report extraneous material, something that was not said at the trial. And the trouble with a complex trial, as you, you know well yourself, is you have a lot of information in your head about this case, which may not be related to the jury because it's not appropriate. They don't need to know it for the trial. But if you, by mistake, put that material into the trial report before the verdict and there's any danger that the jury either read it or could be told about it by their families or friends, then that could jeopardize the trial. And there have been instances, the most famous incident was in 2001 when a trial involving Leeds footballers was abandoned. They're accused of violence to a man of Asian heritage outside a nightclub. And the judge had ruled that no evidence should be given that this was a racial attack. But the Sunday Mirror, at a time when the jury was still considering its verdict, published an interview with the victim's father in which he said it was a a racist attack and that meant the trial was abandoned. It cost the Sunday Mirror quite a lot of money, didn't it? It did, yes. They were fined, uh, I think it was £75,000 contempt, but the editor resigned as a consequence, Colin Myler. So it cost him his job. And the cost of the abandoned trial, because there had to be a second trial, the cost of the first trial was over a million pounds. After that, the government passed a law, which is in the Courts Act 2003, saying that if there was serious misconduct, in effect causing a trial to be aborted, whoever had committed the serious misconduct could be required to pay the cost of the abandoned trial. We should say that the Leeds footballer, Lee Bowyer, was acquitted of, of the charges and the other one, Jonathan Woodgate, was acquitted of the main charge but, but convicted of a fray. Louise Tickle is a campaigning journalist who's been instrumental in making the family courts more transparent. She told us in episode 21 of the podcast that a new pilot scheme which allows journalists to report proceedings in the family courts for the first time was a crucial step forward. Journalists have been allowed to go into private hearings in family courts since 2009, but there hasn't been very much point in us going because a law that was enacted in 1960 essentially said you can't report anything that goes on in there because if you do, it's a contempt of court, punishable by a potentially unlimited fine. And the other thing that you can't do is you can't identify any of the people who are involved in the family court proceedings until they come to an end, until there's a final order. And when you take those two bits of law together, essentially it means that you can't produce anything as a journalist that would help a reader or a listener relate to the people or understand their problems. For people who have never had any dealings with the family court, can you just walk us through the sort of range and extent of cases that are dealt with by the family court 
which therefore might give people a sense of just how important it is now that journalists being allowed in may well lift a veil on, on a lot of this. There are often cases that are heard in family courts where potentially somebody might have been found not guilty of an offence in the criminal courts because that standard of proof beyond reasonable doubt hasn't been able to be reached. But where, for instance, nevertheless, their children who might have been affected by their crime are taken off them in family courts on a much lower standard of proof. And so you can be found not guilty of something in a criminal court, but still lose your kids in a family court. And the fact that these two things are happening, I think, sounds bizarre to lots of people and they don't understand it because we can't really explain it or why it's done. You know, there is a good reason why there are restrictions on reporting in family courts. I think the restriction on naming people is the right thing because people don't go to family courts because they are there necessarily as criminals. They're often at the most vulnerable, painful part of their life. Their family's broken down, their children are in crisis, they're in crisis. Yeah, I mean, serious decisions are made, aren't they, about, you know, people having their children taken into care, victims of domestic violence, all sorts of really serious often kind of traumatic events that happen to ordinary people that in a criminal court would be splashed all over the newspapers because it's in the public interest that these cases are reported. But like you said, they're, they're so serious, some of these cases, but they've been held behind closed doors. The state in family courts exerts really draconian powers. Like you said, Liz, you know, your relationship, your your legal relationship with your children can be extinguished in law by a family court judge when a child is placed for adoption. You can have, just as a private individual, if your relationship splits up and it's very, very acrimonious and you end up, you know, in highly litigious court hearings, you can have your child removed from you and placed with the other parent with no right to see them on occasion. Really big things happen out of sight and to date, really kind of out of mind and out of any public understanding. That's it for episode 49. Liz and I will continue to be at court until the jury's decision is made and they announce their verdicts. We've no idea how long that'll take, but we'll bring it to you as soon as it happens. So thanks so much for bearing with us. You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby at gmail.com. See you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. Oh, God, you find me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah... I remember that being really stressful. Everything I know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.